Welcome to episode two of The Elephant, a podcast exploring our changing climate and the socio-political, psychological and emotional repercussions of living in an unpredictable new environment. The Elephant is hosted by author and journalist Kevin Bloom and is produced by me, Joel Lezaiski. In this episode, we talk to author and radical environmentalist Derek Jensen. Derek has written over 20 books exploring and critiquing contemporary society and its values. Some of these books include A Language Older Than Words, The Culture of Make-Believe, and Endgame, Volumes 1 and 2. For more information about Derek, you can visit his website at www.derekjensen.org. So, hey Derek, it's... uh it's a real honor to be speaking to you, and um, you've caught uh, you've caught me on quite a disheartening day. I uh, I'm an investigative journalist here in South Africa, and uh, one of my focuses um, over the last few years has been on indigenous land rights and how critical protecting these rights are when we're looking at uh, climate and ecosystem collapse. And there was a major case that was supposed to come before the High Court on Friday, having to do with the security of tenure of uh, 5.2 million South Africans in uh, the former Bantustan, the former homeland of KwaZulu, which today is KwaZulu-Natal. And effectively what's been happening is the, uh, the king, Goodwells Wellatini, who's the sole shareholder in a trust that was formed in 1994 to essentially safeguard the, uh, the rights of, of these South Africans, has been charging these South Africans rent, which is completely unconstitutional. And the case would have been a slam dunk. And more important than the unlawful charging of rent has been the deals with third parties. So there's a lot of coal in this area. There's offshore oil. The, uh, the small-scale farming practices in this area, as you know, report after report is showing us, is, is one of the you know, frontline measures against climate and ecosystem collapse. All of which to say is today is one, is one of those days where I'm pretty much beyond hope. And uh, referring to that uh, prophetic essay of yours from 2006 and your, your deep interest and your very eloquent and, uh, well, your very eloquent grappling with indigenous wisdom, I wonder if you could sort of comment on this this specific story well well first off thank you for having me and second um and thank you for for your kind words and second i can make some comments but um because i'm a continent away or two continents away um you know i i actually don't know anything about that specific case so i can make some general comments uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, we talk about traditional indigenous land rights, and they are incredibly important. I think we all agree on that. And, and then 
I mean, this is something I don't want to get into too much because I'm not indigenous, but I've had so many, like I asked one indigenous friend years ago, if there were any tribal governments in the United States that she completely trusted. And I'm just thinking about this in terms of what you said about the king charging rent. And that, um, and, and she said, no, there weren't any tribal governments that she really trusted. And there are some tribal governments to do some very good things. Um, but part of the problem is that um, capitalism and industrialism and what Jack Forbes would call the Wedigo culture, the cannibal culture, they're, they're really highly infectious diseases. And they, um, you see in Alaska right now, there's a, a big split among some of the, um, among some of the indigenous nations up there as to whether they support oil drilling. And it really, for the most part, comes down to whether that nation uh, has, will receive money from the drilling or not. Mm. It's, it's really, I can't imagine how hard it would be to try to maintain a, um, a life way that has worked on the land for, you know, thousands of years. And in South Africa, it goes back much farther, um, much further. And to try to maintain that in the face of, um, the sort of relentless onslaught of capitalism that, and especially in South Africa where this happens all over, but I mean, as we all know, the laws of apartheid were written to um, force uh, traditional um, subsistence communities into uh, um, into the wage economy to get workers for the mines, um, because if somebody has been living on the land for thousands of years why would they go down in the hellish conditions in your mind? So they pass laws, you know, hut taxes, poll taxes, dog taxes. People have to get get money. I mean, they get to get a job to pay a wage. I mean, to receive Indeed. a wage so they can pay their taxes. So how do you maintain, how does one, how does any culture maintain um, traditional values in the face not only of that stick, but also the carrot of um, the goodies, the comforts or elegancies that this way of life provides. Um, and I don't know. I mean, is that is that completely off topic or is that relevant? No, that's that's totally on topic. And you know, the subtleties here have to do with the fact that there there has been no government in the in the history of this country that hasn't used traditional laws and and indigenous custom as a, a vassal of the state i mean in in sort of local contexts uh it, it under under the colonial in the colonial area uh, the union of south africa and then the apartheid state essentially the traditional councils the traditional authorities became the local state 
1994, we get this constitution where the security of tenure of the previously dispossessed is enshrined. And even and especially under this new dispensation, these rights are whittled away by the state in the face of the fact that every time it gets to the high court or the constitutional court, the judgment is in favor of the, the residents. And this was going to happen again on Friday. There was no ways the, the Minister of uh, Rural Affairs and the Ingunyama Trust Board were going to win this case. It, it was an impossible case to win. And there were tens of thousands of South Africans looking forward to their day in court here because there were two major wins last year. One that had to do with the same thing that was happening in the Eastern Cape and another thing in the Northwest. And those specific cases also had to do with mining. And I know your history, you know, you, you started out when you left school as uh, as a mining engineer, or you got your you got your degree in, in 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 mining engineering, and just sort of bringing that into the conversation, how much do you think that conscientized you, and and perhaps talking about it in the context of this conversation, where you know as you're saying, capitalism's too big a force, but. I'm certainly coming across people within the mining industry itself in this country where we've actually hit a situation. We have a drought uh, across vast swathes of South Africa today, and either the mines can have the water or the local communities can have the water. It's pretty much a zero-sum game. And so we know, and yet the state is still doubling down. Well, a few things about that. One is it's always been a zero-sum game. There, there is no surplus in nature. And water taken by mines is water that can't be used by someone else, which includes non-humans. Um, there's a... Um, I, I did an interview last year that I didn't... I mean, I interviewed someone last year that I, I didn't ever play because it was a somebody who defends a river, but she kept insisting over and over that there's enough water for everybody, that the farmers can have their water and the mines can have their water and the fish can have their water. Mm-hmm. I, I just responded, then why doesn't the river reach the ocean anymore? Yeah. They can't. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that From the perspective of industrialism, civilization, capitalism, whichever you want to talk about, um, environmental protection and community protection are both luxuries. From that perspective, I'm not saying it's true. From that perspective. So um, they can set aside certain places to protect but 
we need to not kid ourselves that when those resources are required. So, you know, first they go after the easy oil. And then after that, they go after the more difficult oil, then the more difficult oil, and the more difficult mm -hmm. oil. So first you just get the oil that you can scoop up. And then after that, you get this, the oil you have to, to drill for. And then after that, you get the oil that's offshore and you get the shale oil. Same with mining. The first thing you do is you just go pick up rocks on the ground. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you start digging more and more difficult mines. It's just basic economics. And, and we, have to, we have to not delude ourselves into believing that, well, I'll just cut to the chase. And I've asked 10,000 people over the years at talks if they believe that governments take better care of corporations or of human beings. And nobody has ever said human beings. Mm -hmm. And the whole system is set up to serve Okay, so there's a, there's a bigger question here that, that I'm sorry, we're going to have to raise Lewis Mumford. And Lewis Mumford talks about how um, technologies don't arise in a vacuum and how the Indians where I live, the Talawa, did not invent refrigerators, not because they're too stupid to invent refrigerators, but they didn't invent refrigerators because they didn't have any need because there was a lot of salmon here. And salmon stay freshest in the stream. There was absolutely no need to create the technology and all the attendant technologies that uh, that were that go into that go into a refrigerator. And so he argued that a technology is surrounded by and arises from and gives rise to certain social forms. So he called that a technic. That's you don't just have an automobile, you have an entire society built and, and social rules built around them. And this is going to come to a point in a minute. And that he called a technic, T-E-C-H-N-I-C. And he found that some technics are democratic and some are authoritarian. And by democratic, that would mean it arises from and gives rise to democratic social structures and other techniques, other technologies arise from and give rise to authoritarian uh, social structures. And an example would be um, pottery or basket weaving are democratic in that nobody can control your access to reeds. There may be good basket weavers and bad basket weavers, but nobody can control it. Or a bow and arrow. Anybody can make a bow and arrow. Uh, if you just have those basic materials, you might make one that I would make one that's really bad because I don't know how to do it, but they can't control the material. On the other hand, a gun, and the point with bow and arrow is they both kill, but a gun, if somebody can control your access to the gunpowder or you control your access to the lead, it's, it's useless. So if somebody can control it, it becomes authoritarian. And a really good example of this is I was getting interviewed a few years ago by this guy who was a dedicated Marxist who believed that you can have nothing but purely voluntary economic exchanges with no exploitation and an industrial system and cities. I said, okay, great. Um, 
how do your people in the cities get around? He said, on a bus. I said, okay, great. What's your bus made of? He said, oh, metal. I said, okay, great. Where do you get the metal? He said, from a mine. I said, great. How do you get people to go in the mines? He said, well, you just pay them a whole lot. And I said, well, you know, mining has traditionally been one of the, uh, was one of the earliest forms of slavery because living, being in a mine is terrible, but I'll give you that one. So what do you do about the pollution from mine? Because every hard rock mine in the world pollutes groundwater and pollutes the water around it. And he said, well, you pay the people to move who live next to the river. I said, great. What if they have lived next to this river for 5,000 years? He said, well, you pay them more. I said, what if they lived there for 5,000 years and their ancestors are buried there and they refuse to move no matter how much you pay? He said, well, how many are there? I said, I don't know, 500. He said, well, the million people in the city vote and they vote that those 500 people next to the river have to leave. And I said, great. So what you've done is you've gone from purely voluntary exchanges to democratic empire, land theft from indigenous people and genocide in less than a minute. Also, you can have a bus. Mm. And the point is that certain technologies. So the other reason that Mumford called these, these techniques or techniques, sorry, techniques uh, authoritarian is because the technique itself can become in charge. So when people design cities, what's one of their primary considerations? Cars. Their cars, the cities are designed for cars, not for human beings. Transportation systems, the economic system is designed for corporations. It's not designed for, for human beings, for community. And so it's no surprise that when mining claims run up against the needs of human communities, that the mining claims are going to win. The only time that mining claims aren't going to win is when those mines aren't yet necessary for the system because the system is more important than, I mean, it's extraordinary. Sometimes because I hate the system so much and because I think the system is killing the planet and killing human communities, people go, gosh, you must not like human beings. I'm not the one that's pushing a system that's causing slavery, that's causing dispossession of indigenous people and on and on. And the thing that's, oh, okay. So one more thing and then I'll, then I'll shut up that, a few months ago, or maybe a year ago, there was a uh, an op-ed in the New York Times about, um, you know, gosh, maybe it would be better for the planet if humans just went extinct. And the thing I found extraordinary about this is that in the New York Times and mainstream press, you can have books like World Without Us. You can have, it is very possible, and you can have all sorts of people talking about fairly soon, you know, human extinction and people can discuss this blithely but what we can't discuss is voluntarily ending this way of life that's causing so much destruction so it's extraordinary to me that people will contemplate the end of human existence before they will contemplate going against this way of life that is going to cause humans to go extinct it's extraordinary mm. to me. Mm. Mm. so you know i I really want to keep this in South Africa because I, I think you've got a, a lot to say to, to the local audience here. And, and what you, you were articulating there with that example of the, the community of 500 people who didn't want to give in to the mines was, is very close to a story that's going on in a place called Kolobeni 
which is basically our standing rock. You spell it uh, X-O-L-O-B-E-N-I, Kolobeni. And for 22 years, this community of not much more than 500 people, I mean, it's, it's pretty much 68 homesteads, maybe 1,000 people in the immediate area, have been holding out against these Australian prospectors who have found titanium in the red dunes. Now, these red dunes are sacred ground for, for this community. This community are pondos, and they held out against the apartheid state. The, the, the Pondo Rebellion was one of the, the few successful rebellions against the apartheid state in the sense that they were able to hold on to the indigenous ways. They weren't moved into locations. Their, their homesteads uh, are still evenly spread across the land. They still practice a form of organic agriculture that was directly opposed to what the apartheid state wanted them to practice, which was monoculture and a specific type of monoculture. And this tradition has managed now to hold out against the apartheid state, uh, against the post-apartheid state, who are working hand in glove with these Australian prospectors. And, and they've held out now for 22 years. And, and the courts have, uh, in, in November basically said there's a specific act called the Interim Protection of Informal Land Rights Act, which, which, like the Constitution, was set up to protect the security of tenure of the residents of the former Bantu stunts. And this was essentially customary law. And last year, November, it was elevated to the status of common law by the Constitutional Court, which was a major win. And so, in a country like South Africa, where... The history of protest is, 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 is fresh in everybody's mind. And in, in, in a lot of ways, it, 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 it's been victorious pro protest. And this brings me to a, a, a quote of yours that I must have come back to three or four times in articles that I've written for a local audience where it seems like everything is beyond hope. And, you know, I'll sort of say, to quote Derek Jensen again, when hope dies, action begins. And so this Kolobeni community, for me, is the very essence of that. And, you know, asking you personally about how you have, I mean, you wrote that in 2006. You've seen this coming for more than 20 years. And what does that mean to you on a personal level? I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure you get disheartened. What what does action mean for you? And what does that story mean for you? Well, for those who don't know the essay, I want to be, I want to sort of fill in a little bit of the, a tiny bit of the backstory on um, when hope dies, action begins. And that's, I was doing a talk 15, 18 years ago and sort of bashing hope. And somebody in the audience shouted out, what's your definition of hope? I'm like, oh, I don't know. That's, that's a good, good question. And so I asked the audience to define hope. And they defined it, I thought, beautifully as hope is a longing for a future condition over which you have no agency. And 
that's how we use it in everyday language that I don't hope I eat this afternoon. I'm just going to eat. But on the other hand, the next time I get on a plane, I hope it doesn't crash. And, and when I was a kid, my mom would say, you know, go clean your room. And if I would have said to her, yeah, I hope it gets clean. It's a complete non-starter. But if we talk about that in one, but, but people always say, gosh, I hope salmon survive. And um, if you're saying that you hope salmon survive and what salmon need to survive here in the Pacific Northwest is they need for industrial logging to stop, industrial fishing to stop, for the dams to be removed, for global warming to stop, and for the murder of the oceans to stop. And if you hope the salmon survive and you don't do those other five things, it's, that's, that's not, that's an obscenity because you're, you're, you're saying, I want to, I want to keep the conditions the same as they are and then hope that some miracle happens. And some people have misinterpreted all this as to say, oh, so we can't, you know, that means we're not supposed to do anything. It's the opposite of that. Um, one person said to me, so are you saying I can't hope my brother survives his cancer? I'm saying, no, of course you can hope your brother survives his cancer. What you can't do is stand there with car keys in your hand and say, I hope you make it to the hospital. So it's figuring out what is within your power to control and what's not within your power to control. And, and then doing everything you can to stack the odds. But then once, once you've done what you can, so for example, in a court case, you can argue your case. If you, don't, if you don't argue, if you don't prepare the absolute best case you can and just hope you win, that's negligent. But if you, once you argue your case and you make the very, very best case you can, then at that point you have to hope that the judge or the jury or whomever brings back the appropriate response. And the same is true that, that um, you can take out dams on a river and then you have to hope that the salmon do their job and, and recover in the river. And as to how this affects me personally or how I deal with, you know, I just had dinner a couple of days ago with Thomas Lindsay, who does great work, fabulous work. He's director of CELDF, Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, that, that they have been crucial in helping local localities to pass laws saying or pass ordinances saying um, they don't want a big box store in their community or they don't want a hog farm, factory hog farm in their community and no fracking in their community. And another thing he's been doing is rights of nature. He's just fabulous. And the point of me bringing him up at all is that part of the conversation we were having was just how does it feel to have done all this work and for things to keep getting worse and mm -hmm. Um, neither one of us is going to quit. Um, we're going to, you know, we're both going to die in harness, you know, die still pulling forward. But, um, you know, every... Every environmentalist I know, every grassroots environmentalist, is just hanging on by their fingernails, trying to protect this or that piece of ground mm -hmm. until 
until the entire social system collapses under, you know, under the weight of, of what it's done to the planet. And that's, you know, one of the reasons I wrote Endgame is because I would ask um, how many of you in the audience believe that we're going to have a voluntary transformation to a sane and sustainable way of living? And nobody would ever say yes. And then my next question would be, so if you don't believe that this culture is going to have a voluntary transformation to a sane and sustainable way of living, what does that mean for your strategy and for your tactics? And the answer is, they didn't know because they hadn't thought about it because they were all so busy pretending that we have hope that some miracle is going to happen that they never thought about, okay, if there's not going to be a voluntary transformation, what do we do? And, you know, there are a bazillion different responses to that. One can be to go on the offensive and to try to uh, aggressively take down the entire system. Um, that's my preferred option. Um, there are other options and, and we need it all. I mean, that's, I don't want to disparage the other options all. It's absolutely, we need them all. And my, my environmental mentor, John Osborne, dear friend, um, often says the reason he's been doing the work he does is because, quote, as things become increasingly chaotic, he wants to make sure that some doors remain open. And what he means by that is that as the society hurdles forward, whether it's in its current rapacious state or when it starts falling apart even more. Um, if bull trout are still around in 10 years, they may still be around in a hundred, but if they're gone in 10 years, they're gone forever. And if a stand of old growth is still standing, and if I'm sorry, I don't remember the, the, the place, I can't pronounce it, but if that place still doesn't have a mine in, it's still intact. Mm. And if it's still there in 10 years, it's, it may still be there in a hundred. If it's gone in 10 years, it's gone. Mm. And, so, and a lot of indigenous people have said the same things about their own traditions, that they are just trying to hold on to what they can, um, basically until this hurricane passes, except that I shouldn't say hurricane because hurricanes are useful and, and natural mm -hmm. until this invasion, until this occupation ends. And then until after that too, because, you know, taking away the larger social structure, um, is going to be really, uh, as societies collapse, um, things become much, much worse before they become even worse than that. And then eventually they may become better, but that takes a long time. Um, even if it's a repressive uh, regime, there's still a stability. And when it falls apart, um, there is, there is, there's a, quite often a period of, of chaotic destructiveness as opposed to more organized destructiveness. Mm -hmm. Which is one reason that I, I always emphasize, and I wrote about this in Culture Make-Believe, that um, as, as patriarchal civic societies collapse, um, racism and hatred of women both become more extreme for a certain time. Yeah. Which is one reason I, I have I work so much to make our allegiance to women absolute now and our allegiance to uh, to people of color absolute too. Yeah. So we we started to see and and I mean th th this was certainly part of 
my my pivot from focusing on corruption and, and, and civil conflict, which which has been my, 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 my background for the last 20 years. But the IPCC uh, report on uh, special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees comes out 7th of October last year. Um, within two, three months of that, all of a sudden we're seeing mainstream, the, the big mainstream newspapers around the world, New York Times, uh, Sydney Morning Herald, The Guardian, pivot towards putting climate collapse on the front page uh, maybe four out of five days where you, you'd maybe see it on page four, four or five before that. And the, the, the take-home from that report is, for some reason, we've got 12 years to fundamentally alter our underlying political and economic structures. Otherwise, and of course I'm paraphrasing, the, the fabric of modern civilizations going to unravel. In tandem with this, we're seeing Fridays for Future, we're seeing Greta Thunberg, and along comes the 20th of September, 2019, where, you know, certainly the biggest coordinated global mass action event of my lifetime uh, is, is, is witnessed. And a couple of questions around that for you. A, do you think that this is a, an articulation, an expression of what may be the reality that if 3 to 5% of a population uh, coalesce around uh, a specific cause, that it can fundamentally change society? And B, looking at that, watching that watching the IPCC report, watching the reaction to that, and given your history of being deeply steeped in this for more than two decades before, what are you watching? What are you seeing? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? Well, thank you for all these wonderful questions. And um, unfortunately, uh, on this question, again, I'm, I'm going to be a party pooper. And I think it's wonderful that people are dismobilized. And unfortunately, I think that um, there is a terrible thing that has happened over the last 25 years to the environmental movement. And the climate change movement has been absolutely central to this atrocity, which is once upon a time, the environmental movement was about protecting wild places and wild beings. And somehow there's been a transformation that's taken place. Well, somehow, this is, this, is, this is how capitalism works. Um, there has been a trans transformation that's taken place such that so-called environmentalism has become more about sustaining this way of life than it has about protecting life on the planet. And so you can have 100,000 people march on the streets of Paris or New York or London or Washington, D.C. And if you ask them why they're marching, they will say, 
we are marching for uh, to protect the planet, which is great. But then if you ask them their specific demands, their demands are for subsidies for the wind and solar sectors of the industrial economy. And so basically the movement has been converted into lobbying arm of a specific sector of industry, of capitalism. And and this is not helpful to the planet. Um, the planet doesn't need solar harvesting facilities in the desert, in what used to be desert tortoise habitat. The industrial economy needs them, but the planet doesn't need them. The planet doesn't need offshore wind harvesting facilities. The industrial economy needs them. And I just wrote a book. Or I, I wrote a book with a couple of people, um, Lear Keith and Max Wilbert, that that is about... Uh, it's called Bright Green Lies, and it's how wind and solar won't even run the economy, much less help the planet, and how destructive wind and solar and those so-called alternative energies, what Ozzy Zayner calls um, alternative fossil fuel energies, because that's you know, there's mining required at every step of the way for mm -hmm. all those. And, and also there's something that needs to be put into this discussion as often as possible called Jevons Paradox, that is, Jevons was an economist in the 19th century who, uh, who studied coal. And what he discovered was that if you find a more wish efficient way to use coal, like you only have to use two pieces of coal to make dinner instead of one to cook dinner, um, what he found is that that did not decrease coal use, as you would think, but instead increased coal use because now it's more efficient, which means that you can uh, find more uses for it, more economical uses for it. So increased efficiency in coal use leads to increased coal use paradoxically. And I mean, think about this, that let's say I live in Northern California. I don't know if Northern California has a reputation over there, but marijuana is everywhere here. Mm. And somebody has a marijuana grow and electricity is half of their expense. And then suddenly they get a super duper new fancy light that makes it half as expensive to run the marijuana grow for the electricity. They have a choice. They can either pocket that money or if they're a capitalist, this is how capitalism works, you double the size of your grow and you've you know, basically tripled your, quadrupled your, mm. your, your profit and also your use of fertilizers and everything else. So everything else increases too. The point is that every time a new source of energy has come online for the industrial economy, it has not replaced a previous source, but instead it has added on to it. So there is more wood used for fuel today than prior to the beginning of the oil age. So you'd think mm. that oil would have substituted for wood, but it didn't. It just added on. Mm. And it's the same with... Um, with, they talk about France going nuclear back in the 60s and how that supposedly saved so much oil, but it's not true. It is true that nuclear provides a larger percentage of French 
energy needs, energy use, than does or than 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 it does in a country without nuclear as much as France does, but also the per capita use has basically quadrupled, which means that the actual amount of oil used in France is greater today than it was in '64. So the point is that I think it's absolutely wonderful that attention is being paid to these issues. But basically, this is just Naomi Klein's shock doctrine applied to giving subsidies to wind and solar. Mm. Mm. Their so-called alternative energies, which are crap, by the way. I mean, they don't, they don't even help the planet, uh, as I've said, with the mining and everything. But the accounting is all bogus, too. That they, We hear all the time that Bhutan, for example, is carbon neutral. It's complete nonsense because Bhutan gets most of its electricity from hydro, which it ends up is, according to the IPCC, counted as zero carbon, it's carbon neutral, but it's not. Actually, um, they, call, they call dams methane bombs because they produce so much methane. Um, first, you deforest the area that you're going you're gonna to inundate, and then after that, you get a lot of aerob anaerobic um, decomposition, which produces methane down at the bottom of the lake. And... Mm -hmm as well as them being a disaster for the creatures who live both in the forest that's now inundated and also in the river, they're, um, they're, the carbon is just, is just not counted. Another great example is that we hear about how much uh, renewables are, there, there are more renewables now in Germany than there were before. Most of the increase has actually been through what they call biofuel, which is simply either growing a crop and burning it or cutting down forests and burning them. Mm -hmm. That's counted as carbon neutral too. It's insane. They count cutting down a forest and then burning it. They count that as carbon neutral because eventually the forest may grow back. And if it does, that will, that will in a hundred years, you may have the carbon in the forest again. And that's, can you imagine a counting firm that, would say we are we are not losing money when you're putting money out that you expect to get in a hundred years. Mm -hmm. I mean, they would be in prison for for fraud. So the point is, I'm 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 sorry to be a wet blanket always, but this is what happens when your loyalty is to the natural world. That it's just it's really frustrating because, and this is what this is what the this is what the system does too. This is just classic. First off, there is no problem. Second. Well, there's a problem, but we didn't cause it. And this is global warming. First, there's no global warming, which is they've understood the mechanics of how global warming works since 1830. And in 1981, 1982, somewhere in there, I was taking a physics class, and they talked they talk that the science of global warming was, was settled. But that doesn't alter the fact that people pretend it wasn't happening. And then... After you can no longer pretend it's not happening, you have to say, well, it's happening, but it's not our fault. And this is what they do with chemical spills. This is what they do with, with everything. And then after that, well, it's, yeah, it was our fault, but we're doing things better now. And then after that, it's, well, we can make a few small changes, which is what, you know, the wind and solar advocates are really arguing for. And then finally, when that doesn't work, well, it's too late, which is another argument we hear. Mm -hmm. And what I don't hear is people arguing that this culture has been deforesting for 4,000 years mm -hmm. and that this culture
culture has been conquering every indigenous culture it counters for 6,000 years. And mm -hmm. it's, um, you can't have a way of life that's based on non-renewable resources that is sustainable. Absolutely. So, so, you know, I, I keep thinking when you have a larger destructive superstructure, yes, we can make changes and it's important to make changes within that make it as least destructive as possible. But that doesn't alter the fact that the Talawa lived where I live now for 12,500 years and they lived here sustainably. And how did they do that? And one of the ways they did that was they didn't have an industrial system and they didn't have a system based on mass export and import. And as soon as you have a global economy, as soon as you have a, yeah, as soon as you have a, a global economy, it can't be sustainable. It will never be sustainable. And again, we can make the differences. We can make the changes as best we can. But it's like David Brower said, you know, every environmental victory is temporary and every loss is permanent. And that will be true as long as this larger destructive culture is continuing to grind away at everything. Yeah. One more thing. One more thing I want to complain about here is that, um, Yes, global warming is a huge, huge, you know, climate collapse, whatever you want to call it, doesn't matter to me, is a huge, terrible problem. Oh, there's two things I want to say. One is the climate change activists are very, very clear about this, that they, the climate change activists themselves say that they're not doing this to protect the natural world. They're doing this to protect civilization. And they say this over and over. We have to protect this way of life. Bill McKibben says it all the time. Naomi Klein says, you know, honestly, uh, polar bears don't do it for me. This is all about us. And uh, Lester Brown has plan B 4.0 to save civilization again and again. And, you know, I had an email exchange with Bill McKibben. Um, and I want to say about Bill McKibben, nobody has done more work to raise awareness about global warming. And he is, uh, he is, selfless i am in no way suggesting anything bad about his personality he's he's courageous he's been doing this for a long time he's just he's just he's just wrong he, he wrote to me one time and said i heard you're, you're saying bad things behind me about my back so let's just have it out it's great you know that he, he he was he was very nice about it and said let's you know tell me what you're saying and i said you know you do wonderful work to raise awareness my problem is you were explicitly saying you're not trying to save the planet, but you're trying to save this way of life. And it's this way of life that's killing the planet. And, um, you know, I, I said, yeah, I say that behind your back and I'll say it to your face too. It's, this is just, this is a, a difference of opinion we have. And, um, and we had a, 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 an exchange about it where we agreed that what we need to do is just take a long walk sometime and talk about it. And, but that's, that's a problem with the entire you know, so many indigenous people have said to me, the first and most important thing we have to do is to decolonize our hearts and minds. And what they mean by that, what they've said they mean by that, is one of the things we have to do is to change our loyalty away from this system and to the land and to the people of the land, the, the non-human people of the land too. So to make your loyalty, and that's a huge step that takes... Well, in some ways it takes years and in other ways it just takes one moment. Mm -hmm. And once you transfer your loyalty 
away from the system and to the natural world, it changes everything about how you see the world. And it changes everything about how you see resistance. And, and that's where I'm coming from with these marches, that we have a huge teachable moment of saying it is this entire way of life. It's not the fossil fuel economy. The fossil fuel economy is one symptom of a larger extractive economy. It's like I complain about the dams and the salmon all the time, but the truth is that the salmon were getting hammered on the Columbia River before the dams were erected. The salmon were getting hammered by the canning factories that came in earlier because not even anyone as, not even any species, any population as incredibly abundant as the Columbia River salmon can stand up to worldwide demand. Oh, a great example. Uh, I got a note a long time ago from somebody in Canada who used to see like four grizzly bears a day. And then uh, now, now 15 years ago, only would see one every several weeks. And the problem is that hunters had discovered the market for bear bile in or bear gallbladders in China. And so hunters in British Columbia were shooting grizzly bears to fulfill this market. So something even as esoteric, as crazy as bear gallbladders in China was able to affect the population of grizzly bears in British Columbia. And, and I just the other day, just like last week, was reading about how Vikings killed off the Iceland walruses. And the reason they did it is for the global trade in ivory, you know, 600, 800, however long ago the, the, the Vikings were, a thousand years ago, I don't know how long ago they were. Anyway, that long ago, they, it couldn't, you know, the Iceland population of walruses could not withstand a global market in ivory, even when you're rowing the ships. And the question I always ask, there's two questions I always ask, which is, one of them is if aliens came down from outer space and they were doing to the planet what this system is doing, how would we respond? And sure, we work within the system. I'm a, I'm a big believer in using any means necessary, which doesn't, which not code language for violence. It's code language for, you know, there's a pond outside that I, the, the frog population was collapsing. And one of the problems was that they were, uh, there's a bacteria and it's not chytrid. It's not the fungus. It's a, it's a mold, sorry, not a bacteria, saprolegnia that was eating some of the, the, the eggs. And so what I started doing, and I hate cold water, but what I started doing is, is getting into the water from January through March, twice, once or twice a week, to collect egg sacs to bring them into the house because the egg sacs are weakened by UVB uh, and because of the weakening of the ozone layer, that meant that the mold was able to get in. And anyway, if, if I bring them inside, then they wouldn't, the, the egg sac would not get weakened. So when I say any means necessary, I mean getting in cold water up to your testicles and bringing in, in tadpoles. I mean doing whatever is necessary, which includes working within the system which includes working without the system. But the first question is, if space aliens were doing this, we would not have this problem of how do we break our loyalty to the system? And, and this is really, 
this is what any resistance movement has to do. Like there's this great movie called The Wind That Shakes the Barley about the early days of the IRA. And it starts with these, these players doing hurling, the, the sport. And at first when I saw the movie, I was like, why did they do that? Why did they start the movie? That's kind of weird. But it ends up that hurling was a traditional sport that they wanted. They wanted people to stop doing the British sports and start doing the old Gaelic sports. And they wanted to revive the Gaelic language. And you see the same thing before the American Civil Rights happened. You have the Harlem Renaissance where black people in the United States break their identity with the dominant culture and they make their identity their own. And so one of the things that's really crucial, like I said, or like the Indians have said to me, is to break our identification with the system and to uh, make it to our own communities, to, to the land, to, to the people of the land, like I said. Um, and then the other question I always ask, oh, I can't remember the other question now. Uh, Derek, thanks. Um, I just wanted to ask something on along these lines. It's something that I've often thought about myself, or it's a question that I keep on asking myself. Um, and we know that uh, it, that we that what's required is is a sort of complete personal, spiritual, and cultural change, I suppose, for for us to make any real progress here. And I often ask myself, what is it in this culture, um, or what is it about this culture that uh, is so difficult to break away from? W what is it about this way of life that keeps us so ensnared um, that it almost it makes change seem impossible? Is it just convenience because at the end of the day it seems that's what everyone wants it's the convenience you can get whatever you want whenever you want it um and uh, uh for example um while the amazon forest is being destroyed amazon.com is growing at an incredible rate um so is, is that it is it just m basic selfishness um I don't know. This is a question I always ask myself, and I, I don't have an answer. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Um, yeah, and that's another great question. And um, I think it is. I think the world's being killed so we can have access to ice cream 24-7. And Lewis Mumford talks about that. He calls it the magnificent bribe. Yes, how is it that the the modern dictators, the modern controllers who have more control than the pharaohs had over their people. I mean, the amount of the amount of power that those in power have is extraordinary. The amount of power that you and I have is extraordinary compared to the the, the power that the pharaohs had. Um, William Catton talked about what he called ghost slaves, which are that's the amount of energy, like the amount of oil or electricity or whatever that you or I use every day is the equivalent of having, I don't know, 500 slaves at your beck and call and 500 human slaves. And so anyway, Mumford asked, how is it that most of us have gone along with this system that promises us infinite quantities of tacos and toothpaste in exchange for a living planet and in exchange for, you know, and also, for the fact that most people are working jobs they don't like. 
You know, I used to have this habit of asking people if they like their jobs, but 90% would say no. And the vast majority of the people on the planet are doing, spending the vast majority of their waking hours doing things they don't want to do. And how do we end up with a system where that happens? And one of the ways is that we have made an agreement with the system that we will go along with you as long as you give us a TV and modern medicine. I'm not meaning to make it all superficial, you know, all sort of entertainment. It's not just TVs. It's, it's, uh, it's not just access to ice cream 24-7. It's modern medicine. You've given us these good things, but in exchange, we've had to give up a living planet, our souls, um, communities. You know, my mom died last year, and I'm going to write a book, a couple books down the road, about I was her sole caretaker as she was dying of cancer. And it was hell. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. Not just because my mom's dying, but because, you know, there's that book that came out in the 90s about it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a village to take care of an elder. And I didn't have one. And in traditional communities, I would not have had to do this by myself. Just like in traditional communities, I was talking to a friend of mine, a friend of mine's wife just had a baby and I've known this guy for 15 years and this is the first time, she had a baby like a month ago. First time I talked to him on the phone last night, first time in 15 years I've talked to him where his voice is slurred from fatigue. And it's just, you know, I've known parents before that's like, ah, ah, what is sleep? And in a functioning community, you wouldn't have that. Because the children, the child would be raised by everybody. And we don't, this is what we've given up in exchange for it. And what is so, here's the problem, is that Ruth Benedict, uh, the anthropologist, described, she wanted to figure out why some cultures are good, to use her word, and some cultures are bad. Some are really warlike, the bad ones. The good ones are really peaceful. The bad ones, uh, there's a lot of competition. The good ones, a lot of co cooperation. What is it? It's not, she figured out, it's not race. It's not house size. It's not wealth or poverty. It's very simple. It's that the cultures that figured out, the problem is that we have two opposing views of humans, that we are social creatures or that we are, you know, Richard Dawkins' selfish gene. We are selfish, atomized individuals. And the truth is that we're both. Everybody who believes one or the other is wrong. That we're both. And the cultures that are good figured out that we are both selfish and, and altruistic. And they destroyed that dichotomy by recognizing we're social creatures. And so they would praise behavior that benefits the group as a whole and disallow behavior that benefited the individual at the expense of the group. So, for example, tribes in the Pacific Northwest here, some of them would have a shaming pole that they would put outside somebody's house that says, I'm a jerk. And I never can say this word. Can you tell me how to say it? X-H-O-S-A, the people there? Kosa. Kosa? Kosa, yeah. Kosa. Um, they had a rule that if somebody went hunting and they didn't share their food with everyone, that 
all the other people would laugh like a hyena at them. They would shame them for not sharing. And the reason that you can share like that is because tomorrow somebody else is going to go hunting or gathering and they will bring in food and they will share that. Because right now I could go out in this system that we have now, I could go out and give all my money to a homeless person and then tomorrow how do I pay my rent? Hmm. And it can only work if the entire community is doing this, if you don't have cheaters. And what she figured out is that the bad cultures would reward behavior that benefits the individual at the expense of the group, like Australian prospectors in South Africa. Mm. And you get socially rewarded for that. And this culture not only rewards you with the monetary gain, but also with the social acclaim, such that we all listen to Bill Gates because he's rich. Why, why else would anybody have ever heard of him? And so... What Ruth Benedict found is it all comes down to how the culture handles wealth. But if it handles it through what she called a funnel system, whereby wealth is constantly funneled from poor to rich, then everybody is at odds. You're going to have a lot of fighting over resources. You're going to have a lot of competition, a lot of insecurity in general. And if, on the other hand, it handled wealth through what she called a siphon system, whereby wealth is constantly siphoned from rich to poor, then everybody is is more secure, there's no reason to have wars. The problem is, and this is a huge problem, she didn't address this, that's, that's her, now this is me. The problem is, if you have a culture that is based on that hyper-individualism and based on exploiting others, you will have a competitive advantage over your neighbors and you will, over time, conquer them. Because if you... I mean, think about it this way. If you have the forests of North Africa were cut down to make the Egyptian and Phoenician navies. And if you have one set of people who cuts down their forests and turns them into chariots and into uh, war vessels, and they decide to invade their neighbor who did not cut down their forest to turn them into weapons of war, that other group has a competitive advantage. And that's basically all of history, last 6,000 years in two sentences. Um, so why do, we, why do we go along? We go along because we're bought off, and we go along because there's a long history of what happens to those who resist. I mean, what happened to, let's pretend for a second that Jesus really existed, and what happened to a guy a couple thousand years ago who preached that we should love each other? pretty powerful lesson and you know we see that through time so there's the carrot there's the stick and even more importantly it eradicates alternatives that's one reason it has to destroy indigenous people from the world over is because there can be no alternatives because if you don't understand there's any alternatives then you'll never consider resistance so um just to just to take that a step further it seems to me that uh, the culture sort of brutalizes us in a sense, in a way that we, we're not even aware of. Um, so to use the example of your uh, the bears and the bile, you know, I struggle to understand how someone can look at a bear and see bile. You know, the, 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 there's no empathy or compassion. 
And I suppose that maybe is a result of like the atomization um, into individuality of, of people. But I mean that the, all the technologies and like the huge, massive, widespread availability of say pornography uh, now and um, all kinds of forms of violence that are just easy to watch and access. I think some of this must be um, helping to the system to perpetuate itself. Um, any thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. Another part of decolonizing that so many indigenous people have said to me is that they say that the fundamental difference between Western and indigenous ways of being is that even the most open-minded Westerners generally perceive listening to the natural world as a metaphor, as opposed to the way the world really is. And we in the West consider, generally consider the world to consist of resources to be exploited as opposed to other beings to enter into relationship with, which includes the land, of course. And some great examples of that. There's a great line by a Canadian lumberman. He says, when I see trees, when I look at trees, I see dollar bills. And if when you look at trees, you see dollar bills, you're going to treat them that way. And if when you look at trees, you see trees, you treat them differently. When you look at, if when I look at this particular tree, I see this particular tree, I'll treat it differently still. And the same is true. There was an uh, article in the local newspaper five or six years ago about how, why crabbers work so hard during the crabbing season. And the reason they work so hard is because the guy said, look, if there's all, but each, each crab is worth $1.50. And they said, look, if there were all these envelopes all over the ground, each one worth $1.50, then you would run around as fast as you can and pick them up. And that's true, except crabs aren't envelopes full of $1.50. Crabs are beings with lives as valuable to them as yours is to you and mine is to me. That doesn't mean we can never eat crab. It doesn't mean nobody ever eats crab. It means that they are beings with lives as valuable to them as yours is to you and mine is to me. And, you know, someday I'm going to die, and I hope when I die I feed bears. I mean, that's – I don't want it to be today, but, you know, at, at some point, um, that's that's what life's based on. Anyway, um, and the same is true with pornography. That's one of my reasons I've opposed pornography so strongly for so long is that if you, it teaches men to perceive women as orifices. And if, if when I look at a woman, I see an orifice, I'm going to treat her one way. And if when I look at a woman, I see a woman, I'll treat her differently. And if when I look at this particular woman, I see this particular woman, I'll treat her differently still. And this is all. So yes, Absolutely. Um, we are taught from infancy on to forget what we knew before, which is the entire world is alive and filled with, with subjects. I mean, if I say to you, I was walking through the forest and the tree said to me, you think I'm nuts, but that would have been absolutely not out of, not out of line at all with basically every indigenous culture that's, that's ever existed. They've all been animus. That's, that's the fundamental difference is that they perceive the world as consisting of other, that, that again, doesn't mean that the Talo couldn't eat salmon. They ate salmon all the time. But what it meant is that if they consume the flesh of the salmon, they now take responsibility for the continuation of the other's community. And that's not just woo woo and cosmic. It's a little bit woo woo and cosmic, but mainly it's just, that's how you survive. Because everybody knows that if you eat all the salmon in this river, 
you're not going to be able to eat next year. And so, see, this is in, it's, it's embedded in our notion of evolution that we believe that evolution is based, a lot of us believe that evolution is based on competition and it's based on basically who can exploit the best. God, that's just capitalism. And instead, this is so stupid. I can show that that's not true in one sentence if you give me a couple of semicolons, which is those creatures who survived in the long run have survived in the long run, semicolon. You don't survive in the long run by hyper-exploiting your surroundings, semicolon. You survive in the long run by improving your habitat. How do we think that the world got to be so fecund and wild and beautiful and incredibly full of life in the first place? It was because every creature was making the world a better place by its birth and its death and by what it did in between. Salmon make the forest a stronger place by their mere existence. And that, by the way, ties back to or brings us to what I think is the point of life. And the point of life is to make it so the world, not the economic system, because they always say, oh, yeah, that's the real world. I'm going to get out in the real world and get a job. It's like, no, that's not the real world. That's the economic system. But how do you make the world a better place because you were born? A better world on its own terms. How do you make the river? You can do it by stopping those prospectors. That's one way. Um, anyway, how do you make the world a better place because you were born and because you lived and because you died? I think that's, that is the goal of every, of every being. Yeah, one, <clears throat> one last one on my side. Um, you know, this... This also for me isn't woo-woo and cosmic, but the ways that we live are are telling us across a range of disciplines and ways of being that that we've hit end times. And you know, you could you could look at the the prophecies of the monotheistic traditions. You can look at Judaism, where we're sort of hitting the end of the the 6,000 years, uh, that feeds into Christianity. In Islam, we got Al-Mahdi. In the indigenous traditions, you know, certainly in South Africa, with uh, Baba Credo Mutwa, these, these sort of end-time prophecies, these eschatological uh, um, Im embedded ideas uh, are, seem to be fulfilled. And this is now being reflected in our science, where you got the IPBS, you got the IPCC, you got sort of three-letter acronym after four-letter acronym after five-letter acronym out of the UN saying, this is it, it's done. And they're all saying we're going to see this in our lifetime. And so, to me, there's, there's nowhere left to turn. I mean, this this way of living is done and I'm a father and I'm a son and I'm a member of a community and this is all very personal and very real every single day and what you're saying is that I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better mm. 
you know, pushing it to waking up tomorrow morning and living with all of this. I get it one step at a time. But the anxiety levels have never been so high. The levels of depression have never been so high. The levels of personal pain have never been so high. No matter how you're experiencing it. It's just a lot. And I don't know if that's so much a statement as a, as a question to end off of. I think everything you said there is a tremendous gift because people are feeling this, but you know, so much of my work really revolves around the difference between public and private discourse and the things that we think but we never say. And um, and I'll back up and say it again since the dogs are barking. So much of my work revolves around um, the difference, the, the distinct the, the, the differences we have between public and private discourse and the differences we have between the things that we think and the things that we're allowed to say. And um, it's like before I wrote my book, A Language Older Than Words, that a book was originally supposed to be about the difference between public and private discourse on interspecies communication. That when I would talk to people privately, they would say, oh, yeah, I have conversation with my dog all the time, you know, and, and the dog can communicate. And I would say, so great. So can I use your name in a book? It's like, no, people think I'm crazy. And, and you were just saying some things that we all feel, but not enough of us say. And the first step toward, oh God, I hate to talk about the 12 steps, but it's like the first <laughs> step is that there's a problem. I mean, that's yeah, the yeah. cliche. And, you know, I've been in so many situations. Oh, it's like, I still remember, uh, God, 20 years ago now, 20, more than 20 years, 22 years, 23 years ago now, um, I was doing a talk at a conference and this woman came up to me afterwards and she was a anti-pesticide activist. And she said, sometimes I feel like the only things that keep me going are rage and sorrow. And you know, that, that really moved me. And that, you know, it's like everybody's sitting around being polite and then somebody says, God, what's that smell? <laughs> <laughs> that gives other people permission to do it too. And yes, we are living, I think, at the most important time in human history because this won't last that much longer. And I think actions we do now have the ability, you know, it's sorry to go with a sports metaphor, but, but it's like, yeah, it's really important what happens early in the game, but it's like there's two minutes left and we're down by, you know, mm -hmm however much and now is when we really need to to step up and do something and that's why i emphasize so much making our loyalty to the natural world because what we need to do is not to try to protect the culture but instead to protect the real world and mm -hmm. to protect our communities and to protect and so far as the feelings oh i'll tell you a story that that really helped me back in the nineties. 
I, uh, I had a, a, have a friend, Jeanette Armstrong, who was an Okanagan Indian writer and activist, tremendously helpful to me. And one day I, I called her up and I was, I was crying and well, I'll back up a little bit. I was, I was working on forest issues and, and you know, everything was just going wrong. And I'd been an activist for maybe five years. I just break down into sobs all the time. And a lot of my activist friends were saying, Garrett, Derek, take some time off, you know, just take some rest. Think the problems to be there when you come back. So, you know, the problem is you need to take it easy. I knew that wasn't right because I knew that if you're not going to cry about the death of the Sam, what are you going to cry about? You know, if mm-hmm. tears mean anything at all. So anyway, one day I called Jen Armstrong. I was crying and I, I said, you know, the dominant culture hates everything, doesn't it? I said, yeah, it does. I said, unless it's stopped, it's going to kill everything on the planet, isn't it? She said, yeah, it is. I said, we're not, you know, it has a death urge, doesn't it? It has an urge to destroy life. She said, yeah, it does. I said, we're not going to make it some great new glorious tomorrow, are we? And she said the best thing she could say, which is, I've been waiting for you to say that. And the reason that was the best thing she could say is because it normalized my despair. And it let me know that despair is an appropriate response to a desperate situation. Mm-hmm. So many of us spend so much time trying to avoid feeling the things that you just articulated a moment ago. We, we run around as fast as we can saying, no, I've got a lot of hope. It's great. When the truth is, you know, we need to recognize that things are bad and we need to recognize the life is still really good and that things are really bad and the life is still really good and that life is worth fighting for. And that, you know, as, as my friend Lear Keith always says that, you know, if there's anyone left a hundred years from now, they're going to wonder what the hell was wrong with us that we didn't fight like hell when the world was going down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times people say, gosh, Derek, you know, your despair is going to just immobilize you. And it's like, well, maybe for a little while. And then, and then I get back up and it's like, I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think of the medical model, you know, nobody says, um, I mean, a doctor doesn't go, gosh, you know, things are really bad. So let's quit. Um, they say, let's try this and this and this. And they don't say, gosh, I can't tell you that you have cancer because then you're going to feel bad. It's like, if you don't know you have cancer, you can't either take whatever appropriate steps to prepare to die or take whatever appropriate steps to prepare to live. It blows me away environmentally how much, I can't tell you how many times I've had editors tell me, gosh, Derek, we want you to write about the apocalypse, but then you have to end on a happy note. (laughs) And it's like, why? Why not just tell the truth and then we'll move from there? And telling the truth doesn't mean, yes, okay, here's the thing. Telling the truth does mean that you die, but that's okay because it's not the animal you that dies. Who dies is that you that's been socialized into having hope in the system. That part of you needs to die so that you can get up again. And this time you can be an animal who needs habitat and needs community to survive. You can be a human animal who has teeth and, and, and nails. And you can be a human animal who says, this is my home. 
and this is where I live, and this is where I'll die, and this is what I'm fighting for. Derek, it's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you for that. Yes, thanks. Uh, thanks so much well, for giving us your time too. and for uh, normalizing my despair at this <laughs> time of, of night. <laughs> um, great. So thanks again. Um, I'll, I'll be in touch when we when we've uh, finished the podcast and uploaded it and I'll uh, just let you know where to find it. Sounds perfect. And thank you so much for your wonderful questions. It's a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Have a great evening. You too. Good night. Mm -hmm.